Have you ever thought about your rights and freedoms regarding your money and its impact by legislation from all levels of government? Welcome to the Information Edge with your host, Darren Yancey. Darren has over 40 years of experience in key sectors of the economy, and he's been knee-deep in politics for over a decade. He's going to get into detail on these sectors, the politics surrounding them, what they mean to you, and how you can protect yourself and be involved. Now, live from Texas, your host, Darren Yancey. All right, folks, welcome to the Information Edge. It's Darren Yancey, and I got to tell you something. Uh, there's one of the reasons you live in Texas is for the weather. Sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not. But in the fall, the winter and the spring, we've got some most beautiful weather that's out there. Right now, it's 80 degrees. December 1, you could actually go out and suntan. It's just absolutely wonderful. Now, summers are brutal. But we make up for it in those particular times of the year. Today, we've got a special show coming on. Uh, We've got with us today Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who is seeking to uh, take on the incumbent uh, Governor Greg Abbott. And Lieutenant Colonel, this this guy's a patriot. He is a Christian constitutional conservative. He's a combat veteran, former member of the U.S. House. Uh, this, This gentleman had his life has been defined of service, sacrifice, and commitment to this nation. Uh, he has a wonderful background coming from uh, the state of Georgia, born in the same place as Dr. Martin Luther King. So obviously that was a wonderful uh, impression on him growing up. He's done a lot in terms of he contributes to different staff. He served as a U.S. congressman. He, he came to Texas to help work on the Republican Party of Texas. And that's something we'll ask him about if if we get the time today. And uh, he's had a burden put on his heart to run for governor for this state. Now, a lot of people say, well, don't you have a good governor? And the answer is we have a, we have a, a governor that's done good things, but is he being all that he can be? And there's a good question. And that's why we're bringing in the colonel today and talk to him about some of the topics of why he wants to run for governor. With that, I'd like to bring on and introduce to you retired Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. How you doing, sir? I'm doing very well, Darren. I pray you have a great Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah to everyone. All right. Well, I'll tell you right now, I'm a, I'm a Baptist boy, so I have uh, I love Hanukkah. Uh, I like especially the ones that like people like to put up trees. But uh, heck, I, I I say that I've been Church of Christ. I've been I think Catholic for a while, uh, and and uh, <laughs> now Baptist. So I, I I embrace everything. Bottom line, we're all God's children, and uh, we need to embrace more of that in the world. You know, I gave the brief description in, and let's just kind of dive right into this. Why do you want to be the next governor of the great state of Texas? Well, it's not about wanting to be. It's about what, you know, when you are a member of the United States military, you always seek to, you know, the next level of service that you uh, can can possibly be. My dad challenged me at the early age of 15 to be the first officer in the family. Uh, someone challenged me when I came uh, back from Afghanistan to run for Congress. I had someone challenge me and asked me to run to be the state party chairman. I had someone ask me what I consider a run for governor of the state of Texas, especially when you look and see what happened in the last legislative session. When you're the chairman and you're advocating for the grassroots Republican legislative priorities and basically the doors being shut in your face by people that uh, they just want you to go out there and work hard and get them in elected office. But when it comes to things like ending taxpayer-funded lobbying or making sure that we have, you know, educational freedom for parents, school choice, which is one of the reasons why I'm heading down to Round Rock because of what's going on in the ISD down there. And we've seen it in several other places. When we don't have any protection for our historical monuments and memorials, when we are still uh, chemically and physically castrating children in the state of Texas and we're not standing up for them and protecting them from this gender dysphoria 
then you got to step up and move to the sound of the guns, as I say, and, you know, stand in the gap for people. So that's why uh, one of the main reasons. And the other thing, without a doubt, you look at what is happening on our border. The Constitution of the United States of America gives a sovereign state all of the rights and the ability to protect themselves from invasion. That's what the founding fathers wrote. The Texas State Constitution uh, in Article 4, Section 7 says that as commander-in-chief of the uh, Texas Military Department, the governor is supposed to repel invasions. Uh, that's not happening. You look at our drug trafficking crisis, you look at our uh, human and sex trafficking crisis, the public health crisis we have going on, uh, we've got to have someone that will stand on the side of the individual and protect their rights, freedoms, and liberties. Absolutely. Well, you kind of segued into my next question a little bit. I, I take it you weren't real thrilled with the last uh, last year's regular session. Um, comment on what you feel, how the regular session went, potentially the special, and should there be a fourth special session called to address the issue of mandates and other critical issues, some of which you just mentioned in your comments? Well, absolutely. I mean, I've already come out and talked about the fourth special session and how we need to have that and making sure that we protect people's medical freedom here in the state of Texas. It's very good that we have uh, different courts like the Fifth Circuit Court, several other courts that are siding with people, siding with the Constitution, the rule of law that says that, you know, no elected official has the enumerated power to be able to uh, mandate what people have to have jabbed into their bodies. But we need to codify that into law here in the state of Texas, and that's something that the governor should call that special session on. But I think without a doubt, when we look back at the 87th legislative session. Just remember that the number one uh, priority for the Republican Party of Texas was election integrity. The governor right. mentioned that as one of his legislative priorities, but it got pushed to the last minute. And as a matter of fact, we all saw what happened when the Democrats got on three private jets and they left and nothing happened with election integrity. And it took, I believe, to the second or even the third special session for something to happen with election integrity. But we have a governor that signed into law, SB1, a bill that takes voter fraud from being a state felony down to a misdemeanor. And his excuse was that he didn't know it was in the bill. So why, governor, would you sign something if obviously you did not read uh, and, and not know what's in it? And, of course, the Speaker of the House, uh, Dave Phelan, would not uh, have the House take it back up and correct that, uh, that mistake to make sure that voter fraud is indeed a, uh, a felony in the state of Texas. So those are some, uh, again, the reasons why we've got to have strong leadership at the gubernatorial level here in the state of Texas and why many do see uh, what happened in the 87th legislative session as okay, but it wasn't a uh, legislative session that really fought hard for those legislative parties of Republicans. And we control uh, the statewide elected to the House and Senate. Yeah, I, I thought we dropped the ball in the regular session and the special sessions. I mean, with the majorities we've had uh, and the the fighting that was the infighting that was done, there was there were huge opportunities, and they just didn't make it. And I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing people that there's a lot of retirements going on and shifting going forward. Here's a question. Um, yeah, thirty. Senator Birdwell put out Senate Joint Resolution 45, which was effectively yep. a restriction on governor powers, because if you go back to July of 2020, which in yep. my opinion is when Governor Abbott really started, I think, falling apart as a governor and looking at those emergency powers, that was to modify those those things and make changes. The governor obviously didn't want to support it. If you came in, would a would a governor West support Senate Joint Resolution 45? 
Well, the thing you have to realize, Darren, is that I was the guy as chairman of the Republican Party of Texas that said that it should be a ninth legislative priority for the Republican Party of Texas uh, legislative priorities, and that was to curtail executive overreach. And I presented that to the state Republican Executive Committee. It was voted upon. It was passed. So I have already been the guy that stood up and said we need to curtail executive overreach. Furthermore, uh, as chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, I joined in on a lawsuit against the governor of Texas because he did overreach his uh, constitutional powers by changing election law. He changed the early voting from two weeks to three weeks. And, I, you know, there are a lot of people in the GOP establishment who were upset about it. But, you know, you either stand for the rule of law or you don't. And that's the most important thing. And I spoke out of against the governor with, you think about after 30 days, you know, you're supposed to bring the legislature back for all of these decisions. But yet we saw a governor, uh, once again, who decided that he could unilaterally appropriate Texas taxpayer dollars for a single source uh, bid, $290 million to go to this MTX corporation for contact tracing. And one of the things I've always said is that no elected official has the enumerated power to decide who or what is essential but yet we saw that happen with Governor Abbott, who just recently came out and said that Texas was never shut down, which I found is a bold-faced lie, because why would he have to make an announcement in Amarillo, Texas, that he was opening Texas back up 100% if we had never been shut down? So I have already stood on the side of the rule of law and making sure that we curtail executive overreach. Yeah, and I'll throw in a final comment on why Texas was opened up. Everybody knows what happened. Uh, it wasn't be out of the generosity of his heart, and he, it was because he came in dead last at CPAC in polling for 2024. Yeah. So <laughs> let's, yeah. let's put the cards on yeah, the table. No, that, was, that was absolutely the truth, yeah. <laughs> but, but the thing is that we have to have people here in, in the state of Texas understand that we're not supposed to be ruled over by edicts, orders, mandates, and decrees, that we're supposed to be governed through the legislative process and uh, through us being a, re- a republic and not, a, like I said, a dictatorial monarchy. So I think that we've got a lot, a great opportunity for the people here in Texas to stand up and understand their constitutional rights, liberties, and freedoms. Well, something that's come up, and, and we don't hear it enough, but, but I think there's, I, I personally, I, I look at where Governor Abbott is, and I look at the Democratic Party, and I think there's, there, we really, we can't have a Democrat come in, but there's also an argument does he even deserve a third term? And in my opinion, he doesn't. And we've we've had the discussion of term limits. If if there were, if you were Governor West and an, and a bill came to you to sign to support some type of term limits, not only for the the House and the state, but say two terms for governor, what would be your stance on that? My stance would be the same stance as George Washington. To absolutely so, uh, because I think that uh, you need to be grooming the next level of leadership. And I also believe in the words that was spoken some years ago when it says nothing so greatly impels a man to regard the interests of his constituents than the certainty of returning to the general mass of the people from whence he was taken where he shall participate in their burdens. That was said by George Mason, 17 June, 1788, at the Virginia Ratifying Convention for our American Constitution. Our founding fathers never meant for us to have career politicians or a uh, political elite class. And so I've always stood for... Uh, term limits up there in the United States, uh, House of Representatives and the Congress mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and the Senate. So absolutely. I mean, if there was something that came along that said the, the will of the people is that we uh, limit a governor in the state of Texas to just two terms, that's fine. I mean, in Virginia, you only get one term of uh, four years. Uh, you can come back and run again, and that's what we saw Terry McAuliffe do, and thank God he was not uh, successful. 
But, yeah, you need to have a finite end, and I think that you don't set yourself up where people believe that they are above the, the rule of law. Well, I think that's, that's, a, that's something people would like to hear now. You're also on record. Uh, one of the things that, that's coming up right now, Texas, even though uh, there's an argument of whether or not our property values are properly reflected in the taxes, but there's, there's no question that the property tax that we pay in the state of Texas is amongst the top 10 in the nation. Matter of fact, I think we're either number five or number six. Number six. Yeah. yeah and we're number reaching, six highest in the nation. Yeah. We're reaching a point where Texans are starting to lose their homes. Uh, it's a yeah. form of economic slavery, and it's something that's got to be addressed. I know Senate Bill 1 a few years ago, um, when Senator uh, Bettencourt came out with, the, you know, we're going we're gonna to reduce those taxes and roll things back. Well, it didn't work and it's not been what it was gone through. And, in, and we're still having folks come up with things going through. You're on record that you would like to see a change to the ad valorem. If you, if there, if you're governor West, how would you work with the legislature to roll out and get away from standard property taxes to the next form of funding for the state? Sure. Uh, that's one of the priorities that you put out there in your state of the state address so that the legislature can immediately get started on it. There's, there's a two-prong attack for this. First and foremost, we need to rein in the spending down in Austin. Uh, that's, that's the biggest issue. Government is becoming a self-licking ice cream cone, and the baseline budget system that they use where they continue to spend based upon a previous budget cycle baseline, we've got to go back to a zero-based budget. In 2016, I had the opportunity of sitting on the Texas Sunset Advisory Commission, and I want to go back over the past 15, maybe 20 years of Sunset Advisory Commission recommendations and see actually how many programs and how many agencies have actually been sunsetted, because I think that's where we find a lot of savings. And uh, I think that another thing is that when it comes to these budget surpluses that we have, you know, 70, 80, maybe 90 percent of that should be allocated toward paying down the maintenance and operations uh, part for the independent school districts, which is a huge uh, piece of the chunk of the state money from the uh, property taxes. So that's the ways that we can give immediate relief. But simultaneously, we need to be working on transitioning away from this Marxist property tax system that we have, which is a progressive tax. And then also Karl Marx believed in the elimination of private property. And, and that's what you end up having because Texans can pay off their land, they can pay off their mortgage, but they never own that home. So right. I think that what we need to look at here in Texas is going back to what we had before 1917 when we introduced the personal income tax in the United States of America. Taxation was based upon consumption. So we get some really smart economists. They can work with members of uh, the Texas House and Senate, and we can come up with a plan. And that plan was passed through the legislature, and I get the opportunity to sign it. Uh, then it has to go and be voted on by the people because it becomes constitutional an amendment. Well, it's something I know right now it's, it's two, two, three years ago, there was a, a, a minor groundswell today. It's a major, I know 10 years ago, there were people talking about the fair tax at all levels. And I have to be honest with you. I was one of the ones that thought they were insane. And now having an opportunity, not only to see my taxes going up, but serving in some, some board capacities for both County and state levels, we absolutely have to change it because one of the things that I've seen, and you've probably seen this as well, is when you get some of these uh, bureaucratic agencies or where there's their appointed positions and you're watching the budget, I don't care if there's a Republican or a Democrat beside their name, when it comes to that money, they don't look at it as taxpayer money. They look at it as their money. 
And, and I've, I've seen very conservative, very fiscally conservative people just go absolutely nuts when it comes to the budgeting process. So to hear you say that uh, the zero-based budgeting want to make some changes, I know that's going to be a delight to a lot of people's ears. Kind of pivoting on that appointment process, you know, the, the gubernatorial uh, position has a lot of appointments to a significant number of boards in the state of Texas. Is there a profile, and I, and I hate to use that word, but I'm going to use that word, that a governor West would say, this is, this is kind of the, this is the mold, but I'm going to, br- I'll break the mold if I need it, but this is what I'm looking for. in some of my appointees, what's that, what's that uh, profile that you're going to look for? Because the appointment process, just like it is on the federal level, on the state level is very powerful because you have a lot of people that a, if they, if they weren't appointed, no one would run for these offices. So you got to have them done. Yeah. How would a governor West approach? Well, it's, it's all about constitutional conservatives. It's all about people that, understand the right relationship between the individual and the institution of government. The individual is supreme over the institution of government, and I'm not going to have anybody that believes otherwise. And when you look at uh, these boards of regents, I don't want to have progressive socialists sitting on boards of regents for our colleges and universities uh, so that they can continue to be little indoctrination mills with socialists and Marxists that come out and end up being like Robert Francis O'Rourke in the state of Texas. So, no, we don't want to have that. So it is people that understand our fundamental doctrine, our fundamental principles and values, the history of Texas, why that history is so unique to other states, and are willing to stand up and do what is right by the rule of law. Uh, and that, that's, that's my litmus test for anything. Let me ask you a question. I mean, we've had Republican governors now for quite some period of time. And there's no question. About we've 20 got years, a, right? Yeah, a long time. And there's no question that we've got an infiltration of, we'll just say, what I call non-patriotic people in our boards that are gubernatorial appointed. In your opinion, how the heck did that happen? Well, it happens because money is the mother's milk. And if you're more so concerned about who's writing you the big check, then that's where you lean. I mean, there are some questions about some individuals out of South Texas that uh, Governor Abbott has given uh, appointments to. Uh, we, we should not have someone that is a major Democrat donor to Hillary Clinton being appointed to any position uh, in, a, in a, a Republican administration here in Texas. And so those are the, the ways that it happens. And, you know, when you look at the, the big freeze that we had this past February, I know you talked about, you know, the, uh, the weather and fall, the winter and the spring are very nice here in Texas. Well, we had about a week to about nine days. It, it wasn't very nice here in Texas. It wasn't. But yet you had a million-dollar check that was written to Governor Abbott from an energy company that made $2.3 billion in the middle of that uh, storm where hundreds of Texans lost their lives to include an 11-year-old boy down in Cairo, Texas. And so we've got to make sure that it is not money that is buying positions, but it is the quality of the individual and their, their principles and values that are elevating them into these positions. Yeah, that was one of the biggest disasters I've ever seen. I mean, they were had plenty of warning. Everybody knew what was yeah. coming, and it was just completely mismanaged. Everybody's saying, well, you know, Texas Grid is, is needs to be upgraded. Well, it can always use upgrading, but this was a mismanagement issue uh, oh, oh, of our, totally. our resources, and and that's what caused this, and, and frankly, it should, it should have happened. And uh, hopefully, I, I think because <laughs> uh, the political fecal storm that came out of it, it's shown some light. But on the energy side, one of the things that we've seen in the state of Texas is we've seen a shuddering of a number of coal-fired plants in the last 10 years. Open them back up. up. We had three. 
We had three that we shut it. We need to open back up. We need to have those redundant systems. And one of the things I want to look at is when you look at ERCOT, you need to break it down into regions and then look and see what are the task-organized energy distribution schemes within those regions. You know, one of the things that we have to move away from is the reliance upon an unreliable source of energy. We were depending on wind and solar to give us 23 to 26% energy distribution. And on that faithful Valentine's Day uh, earlier this year, it went from 23% down to percent. And then when yeah. they tried to backfill it with the natural gas, guess what? Uh, a lot of those plants, they had not been winterized, and uh, they couldn't meet the, the need. We were five minutes away, less than five minutes away, from a catastrophic, uh, catastrophic failure for the energy grid system here that would have made us look like North Korea. And so that's not something that I want to see happen again. And you're right. Uh, when, I, when I think about my military background, you winterize your equipment in the fall. And you had right. checks and balances to make sure that it happened. And if you did not, you know, do that, there were consequences. Well, there's no consequences around here because people just write the campaign checks and say turn a, bl- a blind eye uh, and, and let us uh, be and let us do what we want to do. Uh, that, that, that way of business will change uh, if you elect me to be the governor of the state of Texas because the most important thing is looking out for Texas. Okay. We started earlier in the conversation talking about border, and I attended a rally that you were there, and you went into great detail on some differences between you and Governor Abbott. And and obviously the Constitution, there's an Article 4, Section 4, that the federal government has a responsibility that is it, it's been yeah. – it's, it's had gas poured on it and it's lit on fire. Governor Abbott right now has a constitutional responsibility under Article 1, Section 10 of the federal Constitution. He's also got constitutional responsibilities under our state. He's just now starting to call out more National Guard for what's supposed to be a horde of people coming through. Obviously, a lot of people don't like the way this is drug out. In your opinion, what can be done? You, you had a whole litany of things that you'd like to see done. What would you like to see done in the border yeah. in terms of going forward uh, as a Governor West to get things back on the right track? Well, first of all, you got to understand that this is intentional. It's purposeful. And we don't need to sit back and wait for the federal government to come in and try to rectify this situation. They have told the Border Patrol not to do anything. They have told ICE not to do anything. And the Constitution gives us the ability, and you know, being in the U.S. and the Texas, to take care of it. So this is an insurgency that we're fighting on our border. Uh, we're not dealing with a business like cartel. We're dealing with a transnational narco-criminal terrorist organization. And we need to designate them that way. They're already firing across our border into the state of Texas. That's an, an, an act of war. That's a violation of international law. And so you need to see it that way. And so therefore, when you look at uh, the fact that you have different sectors along the border, El Paso sector, Big Bend sector, uh, Rio Grande Valley sector, uh, Del Rio, Laredo, you've got to look at those sectors and you've got to start developing a border control zone. You have to task organize your forces within that border control zone and within those respective sectors. You just don't you know, continue to, you know, drip, drip, drip people, mission creep people down there. Oh, let's send another uh, 20. Let's send another 100. And they don't have a task and purpose. They don't have a, a real defined mission. They don't have a good, clear rule of engagement. And so when you start to build these task forces in these respective sectors, you've got to put your border patrol, I mean, your uh, National Guard on the border, not in hotels, not, you know, 20, 30 miles out. You know, I don't believe that the DPS should be down there. That's not a DPS mission. All they're doing is sitting on the roads. If they're going to be down there, then have them stop allowing these buses to transport people uh, to and from these non-governmental organizations. Stop them. 
impound the buses, you know, take some action. Uh, and I think that's what's lacking. So, number one, declare the cartels as a terrorist organization. Freeze their assets here in Texas. Seize their assets. Find out who is, you know, you know, supporting these stash houses. And that's how you build money for your border security fund. The other thing is that you got to task organize your folks along the border, create a border control zone. I think that uh, Highway 90 should, without a doubt, be the northern portion of that border control zone. And illegals don't get out of there. Uh, and, and we need to have the empowerment of our constitutional officers, which are our sheriffs, to be able to, number one, deputize people. Because when you look at Kenny County, Sheriff Brad Coe, 1,400 square miles of Kenny County, right there on the border, and he only has six sheriff's deputies. So empower him and resource him to be able to deputize others and give them the uh, ability, by the rule of law, to arrest and deport people out of, out of uh, their county, out of the state of Texas, not arrest them for, you know, uh, trespass, which is a misdemeanor offense. And most times those uh, county attorneys, prosecutors, they're not doing anything with that. So those are some of the things that I think we have to do, and we have got to take away the magnets that attract people to want to come into the state of Texas by letting them know there will not be any uh, taxpayer uh, in-state tuition, no taxpayer-funded benefits, and we're going to start taxing remittances of people that are here illegally and doing wire transfers back to Nicaragua, Honduras, Mexico, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Now, that part right there in terms of, of, of tracking, what what tools are available to the executive branch here in Texas to do what you're talking about there? Because I've had a lot of people say, well, only the federal government can do that. And I, and I don't have a good answer for that. How would they, how would they do? Well, what the thing, yeah, well, the thing is that when you don't have a federal government, I mean, they just abdicated their constitutional duty and responsibility. You can sit around with your thumb up your butt or you something about it. And so we have a comptroller here in Texas that can track wire transfers. We have an attorney general. We have a Texas department of public safety. We have a, 26,000-man Texas military department. So all it is about is a governor that understands the criticality of this situation that does not look at it from a lawyer's approach but looks at it from a combat leader's approach and starts delegating tasks and and, and purpose and missions uh, to people to respectively make sure that these things happen. So we should not have cartel money flowing through our banks here and being laundered. We should not have cartel members that, you know, have property uh, along South Texas, you know, big, you know, nice mansions and things of that nature. we got to let them know Texas is not open for business. You can go to Arizona, you can go to California, but you're not going to have it here. Well, that's a, you know, that's a big, bold statement because it also implies the other side has got some things that they're not doing. But on the subject of property ownership, um, one of the things that has come up is not only what we're talking about illegal, but foreign property ownership specifically what could be determined as hostile nations, uh, specifically China. Okay. China is buying sure. large tracks. Should hostile nations be yep. allowed to purpose purchase property in the state of Texas, or should there be some type no. of review? No, they should not. As a matter of fact, uh, state Senator Donna Campbell just had a piece of legislation to pass in the 87th legislative session, which I applaud. It's called the Texas Infrastructure Protection Act. And it talks about these hostile nations not being able to get a foothold here in the state of Texas. Look, two Chinese Communist Party telecommunications companies have headquarters offices in North Texas. I've seen them. I live up in Garland. One is uh, ZTE in Richardson, which is one of the major tech hubs outside of Austin. And another, which is Huawei, is over in Plano. I don't right. want to have the, the ch- telecommunications firms 
uh, from the number one geopolitical foe of the United States of America in the state of Texas. I don't want to have Confucian, uh, Confucius academies and institutes that are operating on our, in our colleges and universities. And so those are the type of things. I don't want to see a person that was a former officer in the People's Liberation Army buying up huge tracts of land that is adjacent to in Del Rio and uh, Valverde County to Laughlin Air Force Base. And he wants to put up 700-foot-tall wind turbines. Why do you need a 700-foot-tall wind turbine next to a military installation that trains our next generation of fighter pilots, F-22, F-35? And so we need to have a governor that stands up and says to these countries like a China or Russia or Iran or, you know, these Islamic jihadists, we have a, an incredible problem with Islam, Islamic jihadism in North Texas, namely in Richardson, Texas. We've got to come down and we've got to be more forthright to make sure that we're not allowing subversive activities to happen in the Lone Star State. Well, I can't, dis- I can't disagree at all, and this is something that are, it's bothering a lot of folks. I want to turn for just a second to social media. Um, there yep. was quite a bit of flack when you were RPT chairman about having accounts. When, when, tr- when Twitter was going on their purge and folks were looking at other alternatives, a lot of folks, including myself, went to Gab. I still maintain a Twitter account, even though I got nuked. And um, you came out. And you were you didn't have a problem with it. You supported free speech, but they've allowed some folks on there. Um, here's what we get into: we can't do anything about Section 230 right now because it's a federal issue, and unfortunately, it's being debated yeah. in Congress right now. And they're not doing anything. But both Texas and Florida have tried to come out under consumer and privacy acts and do some regulation. Both have been struck down thus far. First, I'd like to ask your opinion on the flack that you took for Gab. Was it was it justifiable? And if you come in as governor, do you see tools that could be used if the federal government won't do their job where you could do their job for them at the state level and give us some protection under uh, either privacy or some type of law where people have something to fight back with on social media? Well, when it comes to the issue about GAB, you have your same GOP establishment detractors that thought that they had a, uh, an opening to assail me but it really backfired against them because, you know, First Amendment talks about free speech. And, and so I'm not going to be a person that goes against uh, free speech. And so I, I, I didn't see any issue with that, and it didn't hurt me in any way. And I think that when we start to talk about what we could do here, uh, I think it was either North Dakota, South Dakota, is allowed for people to file class action lawsuits against uh, some of these social media platforms if they are censoring them. So there are many things that we could do, and I think one of the most important things we could do is stop allowing these social media uh, tech giants to move into Texas and this Texas Enterprise Fund that we use to kind of entice people to move into Texas. That should be gotten rid of. And if there's any social media platform like a Google, like an Oracle, anybody that supports the censorship and they receive Texas taxpayer dollars as an enticement to come here, they need to be told to give it back. Uh, because if they don't want to stand up for our very first liberties, our freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, the right to petition our government for redress of grievances, uh, freedom to assemble, then uh, we should not be supporting them. And frankly, we don't want those type of companies and businesses here in the state of Texas. So I think it's very important that we empower people here in Texas through the legislative process, the ability, like you say, through the Consumer Protection Act, to be able to stand against these uh these woke uh, corporate oligarchs, because I think that's really what we see forming in America is these oligarchies 
that think that they can, you know, wield power over people by way of uh, denying them their rights and freedoms and their liberties and services. Would you, uh, so that leads to two other questions. Obviously, one, you might tell the comptroller then, uh, divest us of any company that's that's violating our, our laws. But the other is, yeah. could, and this is this has been a topic that's been discussed because of where some of these social media platforms are coming. They're almost utilitarian. Um, what's your opinion mm-hmm. on trying to pass laws to treat them as a utility, which would change the reg- regulation? You freedom utility. Yes. You mean utility corporations or? Or like a like a public utility. In other words, they they've become a point where they're almost like a public utility. Do you do you see that? Do you agree no, with that? No. Well, I think one of the things when I look at the utility companies, uh, I mean, we've got to make sure that you know what happened back in uh, in February was how did you know people say, oh, how could these people make profits at a time when you know there was not uh, electricity being provided to people here in Texas because they were selling it outside of the state of Texas. Uh, and even if I'm correct, even to uh, to Mexico. So I think one of the things we must do is make sure that these utility companies understand that if you are here in the uh, the uh, energy reliability center of Texas in our grid, you've got to first and foremost your priority is to provide to Texans uh, before anyone else. And if you want to provide uh, electricity and utilities to anyone outside of the ERCOT, you need to have that approved through the Public Utility Commission. Uh, because that's why you have that structure that's there. And I think that's another thing that failed. It was another thing, part of that mismanagement. All right. I want to turn to a couple of things that um, both relate to transportation. One shouldn't, but it does. And another that's directly impacted. Um, Recently, there was a jury award of over $730 million out of Mount Pleasant that was basically rendered to a, a grandmother's heirs. $480 $480 million of it was compensatory damages and $250 in punitive against a trucking company, okay? These are these. This is certainly not the first what we call nuclear verdict, but it is right now the largest nuclear verdict, and it's something that we're seeing around different states. And what's happened is you've, you've got what's called a third-party intervener right now or what we call lawsuit financing, where you get hit by a truck, okay, and a third-party company comes in and says, hey, uh, I'll pay for you to sue. You you don't worry about that. And they're basically gambling on a lawsuit. We've seen in the statistics industry where in insurance where it's driving up the number of claims, it's driving up the costs. This is an example yeah. of one that was had lawsuit financing. Right now, getting anything done on the federal level is, is, is absolutely insane. But there are now there's states that are starting to look into this. Lawsuit financing currently is legal on the Texas books. There was an amend, or there was a bill that came out prior session. It didn't get any traction, I think, because people didn't understand. If someone was to come to you with the topic on reform of lawsuit financing, which is basically tort reform, what would a Governor West, yeah. what would you be on it? Governor West is going to listen to it because I think that's one of the things that we need to have is tort reform. Look, one of the, the largest uh, lobby groups out there is the Trial Lawyers Association. And when you're traveling on interstate highways, here in the state of Texas, I mean, that's all you see are billboards about, uh, you know, you've been hit by a truck, you know, call us. And so we want to make sure that this is not, you know, damaging to the industry and it's not a bunch of frivolous lawsuits that are out there. And so, yeah, I think it's important that we sit down, we look at that, and we have the uh, 
from the tort reform perspective because that's what helped Texas as far as the on the medical side because you had a lot of the frivolous uh, medical losses here and that's why a lot of doctors didn't want to uh, to be here in Texas but Texas one of the states to change that and now you have a threatening thriving uh, medical community which is able to provide medical uh, services to uh, to Texas so you always want to make sure that nothing gets out of control and it doesn't end up causing more harm and damage than what it's intended to be. And so, absolutely, we can sit down and look at, look at that issue. Well, it's something I can tell you right now. I've got a proposal with some trucking associations we're going to introduce to the next legislative session because what a lot of folks, I think more people are understanding now than they did a couple of years ago. If we don't have trucks moving, we don't have the lifeblood of supplies as a nation, we, we are in trouble. And what's happening is yeah. these lawsuits are impacting a number of veins in the trucking industry, insurance being one, uh, making the ability to come in. On that same note and related to trucking, and I don't know, and, and I sent this to your staff, and, and if you don't have an answer, don't feel bad, okay? No, um, I, I'm not, I am not thrilled about autonomous trucking, okay? Let me tell you why I'm not thrilled about okay. autonomous trucking. Because you know Texas because, is being used uh, as a guinea pig right now. Texas is being used as a guinea pig. Well, I, I don't think that that's something that we should do without the people having to say so, and that should have been a referendum to the people. But, uh, of course, everyone remembers that Memorial Day of last year, I had a pretty catastrophic uh, motorcycle accident. You know, I was hit from behind going 75 miles per hour, and I did survive the, the crash, but as I was laying there, I knew that I was in the middle of about 35, and uh, if I didn't get up and move, I was going to get run over by something, you know, car or truck. And right. I'm just not comfortable with, you know, a driverless truck recognizing that I'm laying in the middle of I-35 and not being able to, you know, go around me or something. At least if I have a person up there that sees the accident and sees my body, they can try to take some type of evasive uh, maneuver. But, so I, I am not really thrilled about this autonomous trucking thing. Well, let me give you some more information just so if this bill comes through that you know it. From a financial backstop, um, there currently is no insurance company on the planet that will insure a level four autonomous vehicle. There's just too many factors involved. So the financial backing on any type of autonomous is going to come from the financial assets. And so if someone has a bad accident, we see what happens to the value of a company. It's going to go down and these things go through. So just keep that in mind when you start seeing these, that there is no financial backstop from the insurance industry on it. And right now, the technologies that are being deployed are, have been proven. They're, they're from gaming software. So they, there's a lot they don't recognize. And most importantly, they're not unhackable. So you can have an 80,000 pound weapon going down the road. I want to switch real quick to what's happening in D.C. You're, you're, you're a former U.S. congressman. So you've been on the ground. Yep. You've seen a lot of it. First off, uh, I know you're on record as supporting Convention of States. Um, I'm assuming that stance has not changed. No, absolutely not. I mean, I've spoken not just here in Texas, but in uh, other states, uh, getting them to support the Convention of States, because that's another one of those fail-safe measures that the founding fathers put in the Constitution, because they knew that uh, there were the chances that the federal government would not abide by the restrictive document and nature of the Constitution on federal government powers, that they wanted states to be able to be to be the repository of power in this uh, constitutional republic. Well, here's what you, you see: what's happening in Washington D.C. I went and looked at the people that are the states. Let me rephrase that: that are enrolled in the Convention of States, and it seems to be the red states right now that are holding it back. There's actually some blue states that are that are committed, which actually shocked me. Um, 
Why do you feel it is that more red states have not signed on to be a part of the convention of states, in your opinion? Oh, shoot. I mean, I, I think that that is not so much the issue of the red state. It's about who are the people that are in the positions of elector, electoral uh, power in these red states. I mean, do they see that relationship uh, between the states and the uh, federal government is one based upon the system and the ideals of federalism? Or do they see the states as having to be subservient to the federal government? So I think that's the big question that we have to ask ourselves. You know, R&D is starting to mean less and less. Uh, the real thing you have to ask yourself is, what is the, the philosophy of governance that a person has? And it goes back to what I had talked about earlier. How do you see the relationship between the individual and the institution of government? And there are people that have an R after their name that believe that the institution of government is superior and sovereign over the individual. And so uh, that's why I say R&D mean less. It is about whether that you're a progressive socialist, Marxist, or if you're a constitutional conservative. How big is the swamp, in your opinion? It's huge. I mean, you know, it, and, and it's not just in Washington, D.C. I mean, it's, it's in Austin. It's in some of our local municipalities. It's in many of our school boards. And that's, again, why I'm heading down here to Brown Rock uh, in reference to what's going on with their independent school district. So I think that what has happened over time, Darren, is that people got a little apathetic. People got a little complacent. People didn't pay attention. But there is another side that is very relentless, always, you know, lurking, seeking, uh, looking at what they can do to advance their ideological agenda. And now we're at this crescendo point. And 2022 is a decisive point for the future legacy of the longest-running constitutional republic that the world has ever known. That's the United States of America. And furthermore, it's a decisive point for the only state, the United States of America, far for one is independence by itself, that was once its own. And that's the uh, the Texas Republic. Well, you're, you're tempted me to get off into a subject I don't know that we want to talk about right now. But and if you aren't comfortable, you can say I don't. We need to address it. But do you envision if let's if you're say you talk about the Texas, you talking about the Texas movement? I I will tell yeah. you that I and I've said this many times that I fully support. Uh, Kyle Biederman had uh, HR thirteen fifty nine, which was the opportunity for people to vote on that issue, and I think that the electorate should be, have the opportunity to vote. And I signed the petition uh, with the Texas Nationalist Movement to get that on the, uh, the ballot for the primary election on the 1st of March of 2022. Now, do I think that Texas should look to leave the union right now? No. I think that Texas has everything on its side as far as what the Constitution says, the United States and the Constitution here in the state of Texas, to assert itself as a sovereign state. The sad thing is that you don't have the right type of leadership in the, at the gubernatorial level to exert uh, that type of uh, state sovereignty and that, that constitutional right. And, and I think that's where it starts. Now, what's the red line? If ever the federal government tries to forcibly mandate itself on a sovereign state, then, then it's a different ballgame. And you know they came close with H.R. 1 and H.R. 4. Well, H.R. 1 is still out there, and H.R. 4 is still out there. The only thing that keeps that from happening is, you know, uh, Kirsten Sinema and uh, Joe Manchin over in the, uh, in the Senate. Uh, so exactly. that, that is what we have to be very leery of. And so, again, this is purposeful and intentional for this open borders agenda, which is unconstitutional, by the way, done by executive order. And that's what we need to stand up and, and say uh, we're not going to allow that to happen here in Texas. Uh, so... 
big concerns. And also this infrastructure bill is allowing, you know, citizenship for illegals and then, of course, allowing them to vote. Well, yeah, I, I can't. I mean, this is where we're going to have to have some form of no, national voter ID. And, and at, at this point, anybody that brings up that it's in any way, form, fashion, suppressive, they just have had their brain lobotomized. I don't even want to have the conversation. Let's shift for a second. You're going to Round Rock. You're going down there. There's there's school boards, whole nine yards. This this is a, probably I think may be the hottest topic in the nation. Um, yep. With, Critical race theory. We heard today that the Texas Association of School Boards is not willing to divorce themselves from the National Association of School Boards. We're hearing today that the Texas Association of School Boards is actually trying to suppress any member that comes out and speaks about it. And then we've got this. And I I haven't confirmed everything on, on what happened in Round Rock. I've heard that they did drag people out, which I find amazing when we have the Texas Open Meetings Act which requires people to be available and how in the world, if this is true, I've not verified this. Did they actually, did the school board actually go to someone's home and have someone arrested? I, I, I don't know if that's just well, sensationalism or if that was true. No, Please see no it's, it's, not. it's not sensationalism. Uh, the round rock. And they actually had warrants put out for two fathers and they went to their home. And, and arrested them. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm down there. So a few years ago, and I continue to say this, that the, the most important elected position in the United States of America is school board. And we have not paid attention to that. Now we see the reasons why we should have been. But the good thing is that people do are now paying attention. But we can't call parents who want to uh, make sure that their kids are being educated, not indoctrinated, domestic terrorists. We had a woman up there in uh, Colorado who was uh, speaking out at a school board meeting, had a uh, you know, federal agency come and kick down her door and drag her, her daughter up the stairs by uh, her hoodie. Uh, why? why? Why are we coming down on parents that, that don't want to have this you know, cultural competency, action plan, cultural Marxism, critical race theory, all these things taught? You know, we once had the standard for a system of education in the United States of America. We no longer do have that. Uh, and so we have got to restore that. And, and again, you know, we cannot allow this to happen here in the state of Texas. People would say, well, Texas, you know, we have school boards that are kicking down the, the, the doors of people, uh, parents and, and arresting them. Yeah, here in Texas. And so, again, that's where you got to have strong gubernatorial leadership to say that this is not going to stand. Well, here it brings up two questions. I mean, you and I both know that board meetings, there's laws on them. Texas Open Meetings Act. You can't, yep. you, unless you have a specific executive session and there are rules of what you can discuss in executive session, you have to have these board members, these board meetings open. How have they gotten away yeah, with that and, right. not, and not gotten any in trouble yet? Because this is the arrogance of officialdom. That's what Marcus Tullius Cicero, the great Roman statesman, uh, once termed it as. And so when you have allowed people to uh, just usurp and, and gather all of this power in, uh, it went to their heads, and now they tend to believe that they are elitists and they're above you. And so we have got to wrestle that power back away from them. And again, uh, to all the people that are listening, please run for school board. Look at some of these issues. Look at some of the people that are sitting on, on school boards. Look at who's sitting on the, uh, the Texas State Board of Education and make sure that those 15 members, your State Board of Education representative, is representing 
your uh, interest when it comes to educating your children, especially when you realize the Texas State Board of Education, they're the ones, you know, are, are making the decision about curriculum. And a lot of the country follows what comes out of the Texas State Board of Education. So we have got to rein back in these school boards. We've got to train up these next people that can run for these positions. And I will tell you, the South Lake, uh, Texas folks, South Lake Families Pact, they have the gold standard. They have a playbook yes. by which you could do that. The folks down at SciFair, uh, Cypress, uh, Texas School District, third largest in the state, they followed it. They won three school board seats. Uh, this last election flipped their school board. We have a runoff in the Houston Independent School District. Uh, three folks, constitutional conservatives that are out there. So it's starting to happen, even in some of these major big uh, school districts. But we've got this issue, and we're going to bring uh, light and attention to what's going on here around Rock. One, one, one more question on this, and then we'll, we'll conclude up here. I, I've never heard of a school board having a police force. Just haven't heard of it. Aside from the funding me, issue. Me either. <laughs> is, I mean, is there any section in the Texas legislature that authorizes this? Or do they just do it? Well, I think it's just one of those things. They just did it on their, their themselves. And, uh, again, you know, Tip O'Neill had it right. He said all politics are local. And we have got to get people that uh, pay more attention to what's going on locally uh, because we cannot have these little fiefdoms that are being established. And that's what I see the Round Rock Independent School District becoming, is a fiefdom. And they see themselves as feudal lords, and the parents are just serfs, and they're not supposed to know what is going on. Remember the words of uh, uh, Terry McAuliffe, uh, what, about uh, three, maybe a month or so ago, in that debate so, yeah. for the Virginia uh, governor's race, when he said parents don't have a right uh, in the decision about what their children are being taught. That's the leftist mentality. And so when you look at Round Rock, it's proximity to Austin, uh, Austin is starting to be that cancer that metastasizes and is spreading out to suburban areas. And so same thing happened in Dallas. Same thing is happening down in Houston. Uh, and we don't want to see the same thing happen in Fort Worth, where it's starting to go down to York, neck of the woods, and Burleson. Right. Well, we certainly don't. And, and I guess here's the question. You know, I've been reading on this, and I guess they they put in a new superintendent. This Mr. Azaz has a mistress. Yeah, she got without- pregnant going to yeah. beat her. I mean, there's all kinds of problems. Is that part of what you're going to address at this rally? Well, yeah, because the thing is that they uh, brought him in uh, in a closed-door closed, uh, session. They didn't have, you know, anyone that was allowed to come in and see the vote or make any public comment against that. So, you know, you just can't have this happen. Well, that's that's amazing. Now, right now, the Supreme Court is, they're talking about the Mississippi law and, and Roe v. Wade. Yeah. And there's, Dob- there's a whole Dobbs lot of stuff. Case. Do you have faith that this court, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm still suspect of this court because I think they bungled the ball a year ago. Do you think this court's going to do the right thing? You know, I, I looked at some of the, 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 the inquiry that was out there, and, and I will tell you, when I looked at the question that Justice Thomas asked, it was it was spot on, and I think he put the U.S. Solicitor General back on her heels when he said, show me in the Constitution where this is a right, a constitutional right. I mean, you're arguing about a constitutional right, and as always, the left just falls back and says, well, it's part of the Equal Protection uh, Clause of the 14th Amendment, which, you know, that you, you can't do that. And well, you so can I argue that equal protection that means that you don't kill somebody. Well, that's that's my point. It's a it's a very weak argument, and so I think finally we are 
really exposing this. And, and then again, it comes back to states' rights. Uh, not a law. Roe v. Wade is a, is a decision. It's not a law. It's not a constitutional right. And so are we supposed to believe that a Supreme Court can make law now? That's not part of their Article Three duties and responsibilities. And so when you look at the heartbeat law and you look at what has happened there in Mississippi, again, we've got to reestablish that sense of state sovereignty and the ability for states to uh, pass laws that are based upon what their constituencies want and not have this uh, overarching, intrusive nature of a federal government, which is exactly the type of grievances that Thomas Jefferson listed in the Declaration of Independence against King George III. I'll tell you what, um, I wish you all the luck in the campaign. I hope that everything goes well at the rally that you're about to go to. We've covered a lot of topics. You've got a large audience here. Is there anything you'd like to add to what we've discussed? Well, sure. Just uh, have everyone go to West, the number four, Texas.com. That's West for Texas.com. And they can learn even more. And uh, we had a great uh, candidate debate forum last Saturday uh, morning there in Collin County, sponsored by the Republican Party there. They did a fantastic job, absolutely professional. Uh, Abraham George, their new chairman, did a bang-up job. And so uh, just kudos to them. So just follow our campaign. And if you believe it's something that you want to get behind, please support us and become engaged and involved. And remember, uh, voter registration for the primary ends January the 31st. Early voting will start the uh, 14th, 15th of February. And right now we're on track to have the uh, GOP primary the first Tuesday in March, which will be the first of March of 2022. How are you stacked for volunteers right now? Oh, it's just continuing to grow. It's, uh, it's a nice little army, and we're making sure they have the right task and purpose. And they're out there just, uh, you know, spreading, spreading our word and letting people know. Because this is, like I said, this is the opportunity for you to pick who do you want to go into the arena to stand up against the progressive socialist left. They're not going away. And so we've got to continue to defeat them every election cycle. Well, i tell you what, um, Colonel, it has been a pleasure having you on today. Thank you for oh answering all of the questions that uh, I have peppered you with, and I have peppered you with a lot, but uh, this is oh, something that I, last week, it's funny, last week's show, I did a show on conservatives asking questions of candidates because just because someone sticks a, 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 a an initial beside their name and starts running doesn't mean they're going to be a reflection of the values that we need. And a lot of times people go, oh, well, he's running. Uh, he's running Republican. I don't like the other guy. And I'll just vote for him. We're like, well, you know, you need to have a bunch of questions. And so I did an entire yep. show dedicated to those questions. And I got peppered with my own show coming back of, well, you better ask this. You better ask this. And, and I know there's several that I missed, but we just we just don't have the time. But I wish you all the luck. Please be safe at the rally today. Please keep supporting Liberty. And um, hopefully we'll see something uh, happen in March where next show we do is with the uh, a governor, Alan West. That'd be great. Thanks so much, Darren. And again, happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. All right, folks, folks, it's been the information edge podcast with Darren Yancey. We've had a wonderful guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. I hope you've enjoyed it. This will be available for download at voice America on the variety channel here in a few hours, send it out to all of your friends, send it out to all your relatives, um, because Liberty dies in darkness and it takes the kind of warriors that we have, with Colonel West to keep that light shining. I hope this has been educational, informative, and somewhat entertaining. We'll be back with a message next week. Have a great day.
Thank you for tuning in to the Information Edge. Please join your host, Darren Yancey, again next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll have more to share then.